Welcome to Alley and Pacero. This is Alan Alley with our friend James Ball. Hey, James. Hey, glad to be here. Jim Pacero's on sabbatical, I think. I think we have to call it a sabbatical now. <laughs> it's, it's been enough weeks in a row. You want to change the name to, to Alley and Ball at, the, at we some could, point? We could. <laughs> Then Jim would come back on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he's I think he's planning to come next week, right? Oh, is he? Is it? He, that's what I, I talked to him. Okay. Yeah. So oh, that'd be good. He'll be here next week. Well, another boring week in politics. I know nothing going on. Nothing going on at all. Uh, I thought we'd start off with the Texas lawsuit. I think that's an interesting place to start. So I'll kind of give you the uh, viewers sort of the backdrop. And I'm not an attorney, and you're not an attorney. I'm not right. We know attorneys. Yes. We talk to attorneys. Mm-hmm. So we can have an opinion. Yep. So Texas filed a lawsuit that basically said uh, three other states, I think it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, uh, didn't do... Was Georgia in there too? Or was it... It might have been Georgia. Yeah. I, that doesn't really matter, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. Three or four states that uh, that had some things with their election procedures uh, that that were wrong, and therefore there were invalid ballots cast, and they should be thrown out, and uh, that the election should be... I, I don't think it should be... I don't think they went to say it should be overturned, but you should delay... I think what they were saying is they were trying to invalidate those elections, in which case Biden would not have the 270 electoral votes to win, in which case then it goes to the Senate's? Or the no no you you, the you do different things. The legislature of the states picks the electors. Yes, correct. And I think those legislature legislatures are, are more pro Trump. Right. Yeah. So that's what they're trying to do. But right. this is highly unusual because you have one state essentially telling another state how to run their elections, which. As a states' rights person and you know proponent of the Constitution, yeah. uh, highly unusual um, and. The, the Supreme Court, I think, agrees with my opinion that this is not appropriate at all because they dismissed the case and Maybe decided to... Maybe you should to, be on the Supreme Court. Hey, there you go. That's the next step. State legislature candidate there you to the uh, <laughs> Supreme Court. That's no, that's exactly, that's exactly what they said because yeah. they, they, the Supreme Court threw it out um, by not hearing it. Correct. It never, it never got before the Supreme Court. And it was a very terse statement that... That basically is, yeah, no. Yeah. And it isn't no with here's the secret decoder ring of how you could change it and come back. Because I think sometimes when they, when they toss out a case, they kind of go, if you really want to bring this back, you should probably kind of think about it this way. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that it was a 7-2 vote and the two yays, I guess, who wanted to hear the case were yeah. uh, two of the conservative justices. And they didn't, they basically said, or at least it sa- what it sounded like from the news articles I was reading is that it's, um, they didn't make an, make a statement as to whether or not they thought the case had merit. They just said it's the Supreme Court's responsibility to, to deal with conflicts between states and right. therefore we should hear the case. They weren't necessarily thinking that it had any merit it was just sort of like we should we should take a look right but the other thing i thought was interesting is that the three trump appointees all voted to dismiss yeah so like all this hand-wringing by the democrats that trump is somehow you know trying to steal the election with his supreme court picks uh well he picked the wrong people then because they're all on the side of 
well, not hearing this. And, you know, not being a conspiracy theorist too much, although I do keep my aluminum foil roller down here that I can wrap <laughs> my head in it, there may have been a discussion among the justices that said, hey, you three guys... Why don't you kind of stay out of this one? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll take we'll take fire, and we'll go ahead. The two it was Alito and Thomas, right? I think so. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll vote against this or for it. I can't remember which way it was, but for, we'll say for to hear the case. to hear the case. Yeah. So that sort of gives air cover that it wasn't a unanimous decision, and it is interesting. I mean, as a guy that that's been in business all my life and hasn't really been um, much of an attorney and hasn't been involved in lawsuits, knock on plastic. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I didn't understand and, and now I do is to have a lawsuit, you have to be uh, harmed or damaged or there, there has to be somebody who was uh, put in a, vulnerable position, lost rights, something like that. And what the Supreme Court was saying basically is, no, Texas, you weren't. You weren't put in that position. It Clearly, the Supreme Court has to um, adjudicate conflicts between states. Mm-hmm. But they kind of were saying what you said. You butt out, right? Yep. yep. This is a Pennsylvania problem. It's a Georgia problem. If people in those states... I guess that's how I would do it if I was going to read the tea leaves. If people in those states wanted to say there were things that were done wrong and come forward, they can go through their process, but it's going to go through a state process and then finally through a federal process, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is we were talking about the media. The media has just blasted this lawsuit and blasted the amicus brief, which, um, House of Representatives, people in the House of Representatives, Congress, I think 126 Republicans or something like that signed on to this brief that says, hey, we agree with this position. So being the nerd that I am, I read the Texas lawsuit and I read the amicus brief. And if you if you listen to the media, the media is just it sounds like the GOP wants to just install Trump as a dictator. Completely frivolous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just completely, completely frivolous, written by wackos. This is ridiculous. Never. So I read the amicus brief first, and you read through it, and it's like, look, Pennsylvania did some things without consent of the legislature. The legislature is the only one that can determine how electors are um, selected. Uh, the the attorney general, the secretary of state, this nonpartisan board of elections in certain states, they did all these things. They sent out ballots. And it's very well written about these are all the things that happened mm-hmm. that that we don't think should have happened without the legislature getting involved in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And it's 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 very well written and very well done. And I read that, and it's like, there's nothing wacko in here at all. This yeah. is the amicus brief that the 126 Republicans signed on to. Then you read the Texas complaint. And we've got to take a break, and we'll come back, but we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ali and Pizarro with James Ball. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. 
ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors, from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs, with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash portland. Welcome back to Alley and Pacero. I'm Alan Alley. I'm here with James Paul. Hey, James. Hello. We're talking about the Texas uh, complaint. And when you read the Texas complaint, I'll, everything that's in that amicus brief, all the factual things about what happened, it's all in there. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other stuff that is a little more, uh, I would say... Do I, do I need to get your roll of tinfoil down circumspe- here? Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> so, one of the things, I think there was a there was a professor that they got that said that for Biden to have won the election after the polls closed and uh, the night of, of the election, it was a one in one quadrillion chance that that the votes could have fallen that way and Biden could have won. And so I seriously doubt that. Yeah. My my chance of winning House District 36 was better than... Probably better than, better than one in, in one, one quadri- in quadrillion. Yeah, yeah, because there's other things. I mean, you know, she could have gotten caught doing something horrible, right? Right, and yeah. and you'd win. I think Dr. Reynolds is a fantastic person, and I don't think she did anything horrible, but but she could have. She could have. Yeah, <laughs> right. Less than one in one quadrillion chance. chances. Yeah, right, right, right. So, as a guy, you know, I, I've done a lot of venture capital in my life and read a lot of business plans, and when you see statistics that are that wacky and sometimes you see them in business plans right Mm -hmm. that you just go oh this the fact that they'd write this down and put this in this document just destroys their credibility Mm -hmm. and 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 it's very hard to continue reading the business plan once you bump into something like that and that frankly in the texas complaint very well written, and then I got to that, and then it was like, mom, mom. Well, I think it's gotten to the point where people are just looking at re-elect- getting reelected. I think that you have this Trump cult of personality where people are just so fired up about him that if you're in a very red district in rural who knows where, and you're trying to get reelected, signing on to this brief is just going to help you get reelected. And you know, even even with the 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 wonky stuff. And of right. course, you know, the Democrats do it the other way is they'll, they'll paint this in the absolute worst light possible so that they can get reelected. Right. By, you know, showing how terrible the GOP is. Well, and the amicus brief takes out all the wonky stuff. Okay. The amicus brief is really straight down the middle, very practical. And, and when you read it, you know, I started to go, Oh, I get it in our football analogy. Cause we've always used football analogies with mm-hmm. this. Um, before the game started, the Democrats sort of got some of the rules, the interpretation of the rules. They talked it over with the officials, 
And the officials said, yeah, you know, this is kind of a different game. The field's super muddy, and there's this weird stuff going on. So we kind of won't call it the same way we usually call the game. So this whole thing about, in, in I can't remember which state it was, but these states, those people that go to polling places, have you ever voted at a polling place? Actually, no. I've only yeah. ever voted in Oregon, where we do it by so mail. So you go to the polling place, there's people sitting at tables, you either show your voter ID card or you give them the, your, their, your name. Maybe they sh- you show ID. Mm-hmm. And they go down the rolls and they find your name. And then you sign next to your name. And then you go into the voting booth and you vote. And that's kind of the normal way. It's it's fairly rigorous to show that James Ball is James Ball. Mm-hmm. If, if another James Ball comes into that polling place and says, Hi, I'm James Ball, they go, Oh, no, look, you, pal, so you, you already, already signed. signed. Yep. Right? Yeah. Makes um, sense. So think about states where that is where 99% of the votes get cast. 1% are absentee ballots, and they're legit. Yeah. And when you ask for an absentee ballot... You know you're going to be out of the country or whatever. You send something in. They say, okay, James Ball got an absentee ballot. Cross his name off. He's already voted, right? Mm -hmm. Make a note of that so somebody doesn't come into the polling place. And that's the way it works. And it's like 1% or 2%. It's a very low percent that vote absentee. Okay. Now you roll into this year and all of a sudden 30%, 40% are going to vote this way. They don't have systems to do this the way Oregon does, right? So one of the states sent out 7 million ballots to every citizen in the state Mm -hmm. and just said, hey, send these back, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so the state now, what Texas is charging is, hey, your secretary of state did that. Or your election commissioner did that. Or this nonpartisan election board did that. Without the legislature. Without the legislature. Interesting. Saying it. Sounds a lot like the stuff going on here in Oregon of we have a, uh, a partisan at the top who's making a whole bunch of decisions without the legislature. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm seeing the parallels here. Yes. No, okay. that's exactly it. And, and Texas points out that the Constitution says that the legislature is the only body that can determine how the electors are selected. So when you read it, if you read it with an open mind, you're going to see there are valid concerns. So why isn't this going through the Pennsylvania state courts? You know, I think that there were the Republican Party in some of these states was bringing lawsuits against the election division. Uh, why, why are we doing this at the federal level and not at the state level? So I think it, in many cases, these 53 cases that have been filed got filed and they're getting tossed out. And I haven't read all 53, right? But the, the ones that are alleging specific, you know, I saw somebody with a suitcase of ballots mm-hmm. and those ballots were taken. Those cases seem to be getting tossed out. Well, all. when you're, when your difference is 40,000 votes and you can fit 2,000 in a suitcase, um, it, I mean, even if the, even if everything is true and factual, it doesn't make a difference. Right. So I, I can see that. And I think unless, that's unless there's the, a lot of different instances of that. But but this the, the the crux of the Texas lawsuit isn't 
individual ballots, 10,000 here, 1,000 there, 500 it's here. It's that they, they changed the way that they do elections without going through the legislature like they should have. So, for example, okay. I think it was Pennsylvania. And I think there was a lawsuit before the election. And Pennsylvania said, no problem. We're going to hold our um, our election open so that ballots received after the date, but postmarked before, are still going to be accepted. We're going to take those ballots and we're going to set them aside. And just, we're, just in case somebody changes the rule later and we right, have to. Right. We're yeah. going to count them yeah. separately. Yep. And guess what? They didn't set them aside. Oh, really? Yeah. They're all just mixed in with everything else. So you yeah. can't. Huh. So you can't unring the bell. Huh. Right? Yeah. So, so it's like, wait, wait a minute. Now, one view would be, okay, let Pennsylvania figure that out. Another view is other states were, were abridged, their rights were abridged, and we need to talk about that. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. This is Allie and Pacero with James Ball. The Portland Spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero. My name is Alan Allie. I'm here with James Ball. Jim's on sabbatical. Hi, James. Hi, Alan. <laughs> uh, we're, we're turning from the national election, and we're going to look at... It Portland's in the national news again. again. Yep. Right? For a similarly dubious reasons as yeah. the last why don't time. You why don't you fill us in? Sure. So there's a, this is the Red House controversy. And so the narrative being pushed by some of the people out there, the liberals, is that this black family who have owned this house in a gentrified neighborhood since the 50s, um, are being evicted in the middle of a pandemic and we need to go out and support them and, uh, camp around their house and prevent them from being evicted. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one narrative. The other narrative, uh, the, which I believe is more truthful. Um, this family owned the house outright in the fifties. They bought it 1950s, yeah. owned it outright, nothing on it. Um, the son got into some legal trouble when he was a, uh, in high school. Yeah. Uh, the family took out a second mortgage on the home. To Fairly pay. serious, right? Yes. So he, he was charged with, I believe, negligence, not negligent homicide, but negligent, um, manslaughter. Yeah. Because he, I believe, was on drugs, were driving with a suspended license and ran a stop sign, ran into a, a and killed somebody. Um, so family took out a mortgage on this home to pay for the legal bills for their, their son. You know, a somewhat rational decision, I, I feel like, you know, something that, that could easily be done. Uh, but then they never paid it. This is in 2002. They never paid the second mortgage. Uh, so the bank foreclosed. The bank sold that house to a developer because this is in the Albina neighborhood, which has like, again, back, this is the gentrification story. Um, Albina used to be a, you know, very diverse, kind of lower to middle income area and in the last 30 years has been really built up. Now it's a bunch of condos and breweries and uh, property values have skyrocketed because now it's hipster white people and used to be a, a more black community. And so um, they sold it to a developer. The developer has been trying to evict these people since 
2018. And I think the developers... Two years. A first-generation American, Yes. Right? So the developer, as it turns out, is a first-generation Russian immigrant. And so he bought the house cash from the foreclosure sale and was planning to flip it. Um, so now he has offered, I mean, th- so there's protests going on here. The police finally, two years later, have decided to go enforce this, this eviction. Um, it had, like, the, the fact that it's in a pandemic is totally, um, just coincidental. Right. Uh, so, but this is really a almost nearly 20 year old story of how, the, how long this thing's been going on. Yeah. And so now that it's begun in the national news, everybody's starting to look into it. And it turns out that this family actually has a second home in Northeast Portland. And where they are living. And so... You where thought, they are living. Yeah. So, OPB went and knocked on their door and and the son, who is at the <laughs> no. center of this, answered the door. So, they all all these protesters are sleeping in the mud outside of this red house on Albina or on Mississippi. And the family that they're supposedly protecting is two miles away in a different house that they also own outright. And so, I hadn't heard that part. Yeah. So, looking at... The Zillow estimates on these things, the red house is worth about $450,000. The house they have in Northeast is worth 600 plus. So these, this is not some, you know, down on their luck family who's being evicted during a, a pandemic. Right. These are literal millionaires and you're fighting to keep their second home. So a couple so- of things for people, <laughs> for people that are uh, watching and listening from outside the Portland area, um, this area was sort of the epicenter of um, black uh, Portland. Yes. Right? Yep. Back when they bought this house. So this, yeah, goes back to redlining. So back before the 1980s, right. uh, they, the city of Portland had redlined a bunch of districts where it said black people are essentially not allowed to live in these areas. You could still, they could still move there. They could still buy property, but you couldn't get a loan if you yeah. were black. And so, so they, they sent them up to the North Portland, Albina, right. Mississippi area. So this was uh, very inexpensive real estate at that time. Correct. Uh, the thing that's happened here, we have a thing called an urban growth boundary, which controls how much land can be used around our metropolitan areas. So there's actually a, it's not a physical boundary, it's a line. Mm-hmm. It's a red line, so to speak, <laughs> right? That, uh, yeah, that yeah, controls, yeah. that controls where you can build and where you can't build. Yes. And, and um, that, has, among other things, driven up property values here enormously. So this property I saw, quote, um, the other day could be worth $650,000 now. Well, it's actually zoned uh, CM2 or something. It's it's potentially zoned commercial. So if you were to demo that house, you could build... I mean, it could be worth... A lot more yeah. if, with the, with a developer put a commercial property on there. Yeah. So um, this is an area that's now uh, gentrified. There's a bunch of hipsters that have moved in. It is it is very affluent now. Yes. Um, and the the question now they've been they've been evicted. But they weren't really evicted. Well, they, is is they, like removed from your home. But it sounds like they weren't even. They living were there. they were evicted and they continued squatting, essentially. So did I in, see that they were renting it to somebody? No, I don't. I didn't read no. that. Okay, 
Yeah, but they they were, so they were evicted officially in 2018. The the property was sold it sold to the developer, the, and right. they they were not allowed to stay there anymore. But they just stayed anyway. It's very difficult to physically remove somebody from the house, and it took two years of legal proceedings to finally get the police to come in and start like yes. actually like you are on not on this property illegally. You don't own it anymore. So now it's become an encampment. Yes. And so they, they've blocked off streets. They're calling it another autonomous zone where, you know, the, the rules of the United States don't apply. And it's, it's a whole, you know, Chaz situation again, uh, for a, a block or two up in now, North Portland. One of the, the listeners said that, um, they stopped paying their mortgage because they said that they were, uh, sovereign citizens. I've heard some of that. Um, I feel like that's not as relevant. Uh, I mean, the fact is that they stopped paying their mortgage. Yeah. Uh, why they stopped paying it is, is I, I think, beside the point. But that's their rationale. Yes. They say they're sovereign citizens. They don't, that the, the, the rules of the United States don't apply to them. Yeah. But. Well, this dovetails with, um, something that's going on in Seattle that we exchanged information on before we came on the air. And it's, it's frankly beyond my imagination. How wacky some of this stuff is <laughs> is getting. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk about Seattle and more about the Red House. This is Ali and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero. This is Alan Ali with her friend James Ball. We're talking about uh, all things wacky here in Portland. And we were talking about the Red House, and it got me thinking about this article that I saw about Seattle, where there's something before the Seattle City Council, and take all of this with a grain of salt. This may be um, me getting information through my news feeds that's um, a a little off-center, but it looks pretty legit. It's from uh, Como News in Seattle. Where the Seattle City Council is um, considering that certain pre-existing conditions, like being poor or being homeless, uh, could... Or, or addiction. Addiction's or addiction, another one. Or yeah. being addicted to drugs, um, could be a mitigating factor for misdemeanor crimes. So essentially, if you are stealing and your rationale for stealing is that you are poor or you're addicted to drugs or you're homeless, then that could be rationale and you could get your case thrown out because of those circumstances. So essentially, stealing is legal if you're going to sell the stuff to to feed yourself, to feed your family. Pretty much. Essentially. That's what they're saying. That's like the... uh, isn't it Les Miserables is built all around that where Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread? Yes. And, 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 uh, yep. They so chase him for the rest of his life <laughs> yeah. because he stole a loaf of bread. Yep. Right? Yeah, actually. And, and, you know, you start to think about this that it's sort of, it's kind of a tax. I mean, you could think of it that way. It's, could it get to the point where people put food in a box outside or, or, or things that you just kind of make available so that, so that people take it rather than breaking in and stealing from you? Well, or- I think if I'm a, if I'm a thief, I'm going to take the free stuff and also break into your house. 
but well so and here's here's my comment on the whole thing is our entire society is based around certain concepts like ownership of property and contract law and if you start eroding these things and i i know the the black lives matter and everybody's talking about you know why do we care so much about property it's about lives you know right. you can rebuild stuff whatever but our whole society is built around that you know you don't get skyscrapers and businesses and all these things if you don't have property and that those things don't matter you know if if all of a sudden i can buy something and oh like my rights to own that is not really like it may or may not be valid the society falls apart you know why would you invest in anything if you don't have a guarantee from the government that you can continue to own that it's, well and and contracts the same way you know this is where i start to wrap aluminum foil around my head because um if the government owns everything hmm. then there is no such thing as stealing from you or an individual, it's all owned by the government, mm. right? And in a in a communist government, the government owns everything. Yeah, I was going to say that's getting very that's the skipping socialism, going straight to communism. Right, and and that's why I'm wrapping aluminum foil around my head because I don't think they're, I don't think the Seattle City Council is premeditatedly thinking, hey, we want to reach a state of communism, but. They're, they're moving along a vector. That's an engineering term that's aligned with a direction, uh, and an amplitude. But they're moving along a vector that would get you to a point where you reach that, where you reach that logical conclusion. I was just reading some more about it. It says, um, if the property crime was committed to meet, quote, immediate and basic need, um, that would be something that would be absolved. And, you know, I think about, um, I know Bobby's listening today, uh, a friend of mine that was a... Uh, I think it also wor is worth pointing out that just because they're considering it doesn't mean they're going to pass it. I mean, we, we considered... <laughs> I've made that mistake several times right. and they, they end up passing them, but go uh, ahead. Well, I mean, we, we in Oregon considered um, allowing 16-year-olds to vote and, you know, that didn't go anywhere. And everybody got all, all excited about that and then it just it died in committee, so... Yeah, I, I, this one sounds more, this is, I think Seattle's going to do something like this. I, I was reading something in Portland. We talked about it a few months ago on the show where, and I think this passed. I, I'm not sure because it's rather arcane, but that you, if you were building a new building, you had to provide space for, uh, shelter for a certain number of people based on the size of your building hmm. so that you had to have some shelter space for people that didn't have shelter, like overhangs or toilet okay. facilities or something. You had to have homeless facilities, basically. Okay. And I, I, I know it was a big debate, it, but it was very arcane. It's like, it's like down in the, building codes subcommittee of some and somebody brought it out and highlighted it and it's like really is that what we is that what we want we want to build a, a new building and and allow for management of of homeless shelters in every building i think this is i mean i, I think they're trying to 
trying to give the benefit of the doubt here, but they're, they're trying to just fix the, the problem in, in the least intrusive way that they can think, which is to put the problem on somebody else. But this is another problem with, with that we see a lot here in Portland is all of these very well-meaning charities and people do their best to make homelessness as bearable as possible without ever addressing the underlying issues. You know, you have addiction and you have mental illness and you have all these things. You, you don't, I don't know, providing showers and laundry services to homeless people is just putting a, a bandaid on a bullet wound. You, you need to address the actual, you need to invest actual resources and get these people off the street and into a situation where they can either contribute to society or that they are protected from, from the elements and from themselves. I think that all you're doing by making homelessness a little bit more bearable is just perpetuating the problem. Yeah, this loops back to a Facebook post that I made this week that kind of blew up when I pointed out that our state budget is up uh, 45% in the last uh, six years and Kate Brown's governor's recommended budget is up an additional 18% on top of that. Mm-hmm. So there's a 63% increase in the state budget over that period of time. And my point was, what is better? Is homelessness yeah. better? No. Nope. We've spent all this money. Is homelessness better? Are our schools better? We're still in the bottom of graduation rates. Are class sizes any smaller? Do we have more parks? Are they cleaner? Do we have better roads? Do we have more roads? Is anything better? Well, no, because we're adding to the size and scope of the government. Well, and we're, we're not making the government better. We are just adding more stuff to the government. And so we end up doing, instead of doing a few things very well, we try to do everything for everyone and it all sucks. That's uh, what we do in Oregon. And that's why we need more Republicans to get fiscal conservatives to get elected. This is the end of our segment. Uh, I want to loop back to this because there's a ton of great comments. What did we get? 238 comments on this, wow. on this post. And it's been reposted 136 times. So we'll loop back and talk more about that. Uh, this is Allie and Pacero with her friend James Ball. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero. Jim is on sabbatical. I've got James Ball here with me today. We're talking about, we looped back into the Oregon state budget, and I made the point that the budget's up 45% in six years. Uh, it's across the board. Everything is up. Um, education, if you can imagine this, had an 82% increase in that period of time. So we have 82% more computers. Right. 82% in the classrooms. fewer, smaller class sizes. Do we have a, is our, is our graduation rate 82% better? We should have Nick on because he, uh, his wife's a teacher. We yeah. Can, we can see how much, if, if anything's gotten better in the last six years. Well, and the, the point that I made years ago was we spent about 275000 per classroom. This is before this increase. So increase that 82%. So call it $400,000 per classroom now. Mm-hmm. I'll, and I may be wrong, but let's use that for sake of argument. Um, if I start out with the teacher in the classroom and pay the teacher, and then I put the benefits on top. Now, benefits are about 100% of their base pay. So if a teacher's wow. making 60, benefits are 60. Wow. So 120 for the teacher. So now I've got about 280 left over. The building is usually paid for separate from that, right? It's a okay. bond, whatever. Yeah. 
So what else am I spending that money <clears throat> on? I have 280,000 bucks. Administration. Yeah. Overhead. Yeah. Overhead. Right? So a tiny fraction of the budget goes into the classroom. To illustrate it, I said, what if we took $400,000 and we put it into a classroom? There's 26 families or whatever. And there's a teacher. And then we hire the teacher. Now we have uh, $280,000 left. And then we decide what we want to do with it. And let the administration come to those families that are sitting there in the classroom and say, we need to fund the school district and I need $50,000. We need to fund the education service district and I need 50000 for that. We need to fund the state services. I need to fund that. And it's ridiculous how much overhead there is because if you and I wanted to start a school, we could start a school. There's Very no cheaply. school. There's yeah. no school district, right? Mm-hmm. There's no education service district. There's no state overhead. All there is is the building and the teachers and the materials that we put in. And I don't think we realize <clears throat> how massively inefficient the the school districts have become. Well, I think you and I do. Um, <laughs> I think well, the people making decisions don't, and the the general public doesn't. Well, some of these, some of the comments. Because I talked about we're not generating a return on our investment, our tax dollar investment. And people came on and said, there you go, business guy, talking about return on investment. And when I say return on investment, I mean improved graduation rates. I mean smaller class sizes. I mean smoother and better roads. I mean more roads. I mean all the positive things as a society that we value why we pay taxes is because we value these things as a society. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about a dollar on dollar return on investment. I'm talking about increasing the state budget by 45% and literally getting no perceived return. As a matter of fact, most people would say, no, it's worse. It's worse now than it was six years ago. And that to me is unconscionable. But if you, and this is where narrative plays a big role, if you were to go in and say, we need to cut funding because we're being inefficient with our money, now all of a sudden you hate kids and you want right. everybody to fail. And uh, it, 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 we as Republicans need to get better at our messaging. We need to get better at our narrative. And I think it, it's so hard because you need, this, this is, being a conservative definitely requires a lot more thought and, and mental energy than being a Democrat does. Because if you're a Democrat and you're like, we're, the schools are terrible. We need to fix the schools. More money. Just throw money at it and it'll fix the problem. But as a conservative, you have to say, no, wait a second. Let's look at where the money's going. Let's, you know, if you are trying to stay, stay warm by lighting a $20 bill on fire, <laughs> you're not going to get more warm by lighting a $50 bill on fire. Like that's, you can't just throwing money at a problem doesn't make it better. If the money is not being spent properly. And that's what people, that's what our, that's what our legislators need to be doing is they need to be looking at that and holding these places accountable. Well, and I, I can't possibly agree with you more. And part of the problem is it's gotten so big and so complicated. It's nearly impossible to get your head around this. And we go back to the thing we've talked about before is, is now you have public employee unions. If you go in and say, I want to cut your head count by 10%, you know, that's, that's union jobs and the union is going to come and fight you tooth and nail to keep those jobs. Yeah. And so and the unions 
are the largest donors to the Democratic Party in Oregon. Yep. And so there's there's no incentive left of center to make any of these changes. Well, that's one of the that's one of the points that I that I've made to people is you're a Democrat and you're in Oregon and you believe that you care about people. You believe that you want really strong social services, you know, that you're, you have all these beliefs. You believe in the environment. You believe in, you know, all kinds of things. What you don't understand is the public employee union agenda overwhelms everything else. Mm -hmm. That they're, they're basically using you to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And it's the only real money in the Democratic Party here in Oregon, the only big money here in the Democratic Party. We have, on the Republican side, you have business people that are that mm-hmm. are the majority of the money here. Um, the new campaign finance laws that we passed are going to enable the unions to continue to fund the campaigns just the way they have, mm-hmm. and it's going to greatly curtail the amount of money that Republican candidates have. Phil Knight is not going to be able to write a million dollar check to Newt Bueller. Mm-hmm. And that, the reason that I bring that up is so that people start to understand, look, this, there's an ideological difference, but part of the ideology on the Democratic side is really controlled by the money, and that's all in the public employee unions. So. Yep. Absolutely. And the problems are so big and so complex, it's very difficult to tease out. Next week, or maybe the week after, we can talk about um, PERS again. We'll do 15 minutes, because that's all anybody can take. Uh, (laughs) I just finished up two new PERS articles that take an enormous problem and try to explain it in terms that we can all understand. In only 37 pages. It's only 37 pages long. (laughs) But it, it... there's there's two quotes that I use in there. One is from Pirates of the Caribbean, and the other one is from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So it, it gives you an impression mm-hmm. of how I've tried to <laughs> take an incredibly complex problem and explain it in terms that we can all relate to. Uh, that's the end of this segment. We'll loop back in just a minute. This is Allie M. Pissero with our friend James Ball. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349. 6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero. This is Alan Alley. I'm here with my friend James Ball. Jim's on sabbatical. We're talking about finance here in Oregon. And you had an observation about the public yeah. employee union. So when I was running for District 36, um, I did a had a meeting with with AFSME to, to which is one of the public employee unions to um, talk about endorsements. They endorse every, you know, and have been thought of thinking about it. We've had, uh, Aaron with, who's the chairman of the Freedom Foundation yeah. on our, uh, the Rational Republican. And so through that, I've been thinking a lot about unions and the public employee union role here in Oregon. And 
how, because, because whenever you kind of push on the unions, they'll come back and say, well, you know, if Republic, we, we would love to support Republicans. We're not a democratic organization, but we need to find Democrats or Republicans who align with our views. And we will, we'll support you if you are, you know, if we think that you're going to be more aligned with our views than the Democrat. And I've been thinking more about that. And I don't think that's ever possible because as a aspiring political, you know, politician, I want our money to be used properly and I want our money to be used in a way that best benefits the citizens of, of the state of Oregon. And we have gotten so bloated in our government spending that the only, that you, you necessarily have to cut headcount in order to do so. Because uh, to your point, like all that overhead we're talking about, those are union jobs. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the district, the, all those other things that you mentioned, I don't remember them all, but the, you know, those are, those are agencies with people working there, you know, stamping papers and writing memos and writing emails. And the unions are never going to get behind that. They, because those are, those are their people that they are supposed to be protecting and protecting their jobs. And so if a Republican comes in and says, I need to cut headcount because this is wasteful and it's unnecessary and it's not best serving the people of Oregon, the union, unions are going to fight that. So and they're never going to get behind a Republican who wants to cut their headcount. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to talk to people that have faced this. Mitch Daniels, uh, currently president at Purdue, my alma mater, former governor of Indiana. Uh, he faced this in Indiana, if you can imagine that. And what he did is he just slowed down hiring. And about 2% of the employees retire every year. So... You know, four percent in uh, in two years, eight percent in one term, sixteen percent in two terms. So if you just let them retire and you don't rehire, and you use computer systems and software and tools to make people more productive, those tools, although they cost something up front, they don't get retirement benefits. Mm -hmm. So you can make people more productive. You can give people better work environment, better tools, because what I saw in government is the tools that they were given were horrible. The computer systems are generally way, way, way out of date, and it makes it massively inefficient, requiring and, more headcount. And this is a problem that we saw in COVID with the unemployment system. Right, exactly. This is, this is a great exactly. example of that, where Oregon received a grant um, nearly 10 years ago, probably, I think it was 2009. So more than 10 years ago to upgrade our computer system. And it was never done because upgrading the computer system would require letting some people go because it's not nearly as labor intensive. And so all of a sudden, when you have this giant, this pandemic hit and everybody and their brother is applying for unemployment benefits, you can't handle the volume yeah, because your system's out of date and, and nobody bothered to upgrade it because it would have required a, a, an eventual headcount reduction. Well, one of the points I, I interviewed with the unions as well. And one of the points that I, that I make to them when we talk is, look, your pension plan is dramatically underfunded. And in fact, digging out of that hole is going to be nearly impossible for the state of Oregon. The, the tax and part of what we've seen with a 45% increase mm -hmm. is you're funding pensions. Yeah. And my position is 
we have to live up to the obligations that we've made to the existing people that are in the system, the existing employees and the retirees. We have to live up to that. Mm -hmm. A deal is a deal. But and even if we wanted to change it, the Supreme Court has said you, you are not able to. Supreme Court said you can't. And so even if somebody wanted to change it, you can't. Tree. You can't do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you've planned your whole life around those benefits. Now, mm-hmm. uh, anecdotally, what I've heard is most people, when they retire from a state job, are pleasantly surprised when they sit down and finally find out exactly what they have. Right. It's. It's a wonderful, wonderful benefit. Yes. It, it, the, the thing that's unimaginable about this is everybody else in the private sector, you save money, you put money aside, and then when you retire, you actually do an actuarial analysis on the rest of your life. And you sit there and go, okay, mom lived to be 80, dad lived to be 85, Hmm. What do I, what do I think I'm going to live to? 85? 90? Okay. I'll say 90. And then you say, what kind of return can I generate from what I've saved? And how much can I spend each month in order to do that? You always want to have a little extra so that mm-hmm. you don't run out before you die. But believe me, everybody that's 65 and older in the private sector, you're thinking about this, yeah. right? How much do I want to be able to live to leave to my kids? Did I want to donate something? Do I want, do I have enough to do that? You know, do, how far do I have to cut back my way of life in order to extend it far enough? If you have a pension and it's a guaranteed check and that check goes up by 2% every single year, you absolutely know mm-hmm. what you're going to get. And all of a sudden, all that worry. Now you might not have as much as you'd like to have, but you can absolutely budget yep. what what you need. That whole mindset is completely different. The other thing is, is that if mom was a teacher and mom is retired now, mom is a financial asset to her family, right? Yeah. If mom is in the private sector and maybe mom and dad didn't quite save enough and the bank account is dwindling, mom is a financial liability to a private sector. Mm-hmm. And that whole mindset, you you can't sort of talk to somebody about it. You actually have to live it for them to be able to understand it. Um, so the, the per system gives you that financial stability. Yeah. Um, and it completely changes the way you think about things. It's, uh, but the way it's currently architected and the way it's been chronically underfunded, it's just absolutely not sustainable. I got something to say after. Okay. We're- we'll come back to that. Uh, this is Ali and Pacero. Jim's on sabbatical. I've got James Ball here with me today. Thanks. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. This is Ali M. Pacero with James Ball. We're talking about public employee retirement system. 
Yeah, a recurring topic on, yeah. on this show. So the way I see the, the pensions in general is what you're essentially doing when you hire somebody is you say, I'm going to pay you a dollar now. I'm going to pay you a dollar 40 years from now when you retire. And so, and, and the employee says, great, I'll take my dollar now. And, uh, you, you know, you owe me a buck. On the back end, what you do is you pay them a dollar and then you take 10 cents and you put it in the stock market. And over the next 40 years, that 10 cents accrues interest until it becomes a dollar, uh, 40 years from now. And then you pay it out. So what does it cost the taxpayer? A dollar 10 cents to pay out $2 in benefit. It's a great deal for the taxpayers. So, that's with a well-managed pension system. With a poorly managed pension system, what you do is you pay out your $1 and you take, eh, I'll take five cents and we'll put that five cents into the, into the stock market. And 40 years from now, it's only 50 cents, but we still owe a dollar. So what do we do? Well, you, you take it from somebody else because this is a big pool of money anyway. So we're going to pay you a dollar anyway, but we just haven't saved right. enough. And so we're, we're short. And so that's where this $27 billion unfunded actual actuarial liability is, is we have been putting five cents into the system when we should have been putting 10 cents. Right. And so what's going to happen 40 years later is your, your fund starts, the, the amount of money in your fund starts going down because you're borrowing from other people other people's benefits. What happens when the fund runs out? So now I pay you a dollar now, I'll pay you a dollar 40 years from now, but there's no money. And so instead of taking 10 cents and putting it in the stock market and letting it accrue interest for 40 years, I need to pay a dollar now because I got a retiree down, down the street who I owe him money and I don't have any. Right. So now a $2 benefit costs the taxpayers $2 where if it's managed properly, it costs a dollar 10 cents. Yep. And the state of Oregon has demonstrated that they are unable to manage this pension program. Well, and, and think about, I'm an elected official. Yeah. And I can spend money on, on stuff that will engender, uh, votes mm -hmm. today, or I can spend, my, I can set money aside for a liability that's going to occur 30 years from now. Yeah. It's a no brainer. And there's no right. requirement that you have to fund the pension system. So when, some, when somebody says a fully funded pension system, they're not talking about, I have a dollar in the bank ready to pay out 40 right. years from now. What they're talking about is you pay you the net present value. Right. You have that 10% or that 10 cents sitting in the stock market or in your pension fund. That is, there's no requirement to have the net present value in the bank. And so this, this is actually another point that I've made. I forget There's, on here, but this is, this is what happened to the postal system. Yeah. So in, I believe 2006 or whatever, they, I think 16, I don't know when it was. I forget, but there was a big act that was to reform the US, USPS and they had been profitable up until that point. And part of that, re part of that reform was you have to fully fund the net present value of your pension system. So you, you owe a dollar down the road, you figure out how much you need to put inside, you take that 10 cents, you have to put that 10 cents in, in the stock market. All of a sudden, they're no longer profitable because they had been underfunding their pension system for however many decades prior to this. And that's the same thing with Oregon. Like if we, if we fully funded all of the money that we are going to eventually need to pay out, we'd be underwater. Yeah. We, we were, we are spending beyond our means. And, and mortgaging the future. And that's wrong. Well, and th another difference is people say, well, this is just like social security. You know, well, that, it's that not. Social security <laughs> has been underfunded. And, uh, 
the difference is the federal government can print money. As we have discovered in the last 12 months. And, and that's what they'll do for Social Security. Yeah. And the other thing that's different is I, it's a remarkable thing, but when we set aside the money to fund the pensions, that money in Oregon is invested in the, the, the biggest capital C capitalist functions in our country. It's invested in private equity. It's invested mm -hmm. in venture capital. It's invested in, in the stock market. It's invested in bonds. It's invested in the most sophisticated, complex, uh, types of investments to generate returns, stuff that you can't get into and I can't get into. These are the biggest, baddest companies out there, and we are levered up to here to make those investments. Because you have to. If you're right. only putting but half the money in. We are relying yeah. the 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 public employee unions, the Democrats are relying on the biggest C capitalist <laughs> entities in the country to kick ass and take names and generate extraordinary returns or this system just completely collapses that that dichotomy is is amazing yet then they constantly pick on the same uh groups that they're asking to make extraordinary returns at the at the federal level we do not invest social security in the stock market and People become apoplectic if you even suggest that maybe we should put that money in the stock market. What we do is we put it in a piggy bank, literally a piggy bank, that they have now broken and raided. <laughs> they, they borrow from the Social they Security They borrow fund. from the Social Security Borrow. Fund. Right. With air quotes. Right. And, and what are they going to do when the liabilities come due? They're going to print money. Mm -hmm. They're not going to default on Social Security. No. No way. No. They will just print the money to make up the difference. But that, it's one of the things that sort of boggles my mind, that every single one of those public employees are completely dependent on the U.S. economic system, the Biggest banks, the biggest Wall Street organizations, right? <laughs> You're dependent on Amazon and Google and Apple. Apple's $3 trillion market cap, you need it to go to $6 trillion. You need Google to go to $4 trillion. <laughs> or your public employee pension is not going to get paid. Well, it is going to get paid. They're just going to raise taxes. And this is what I'm saying. Like, we are contractually obligated to make these payments, as the Supreme Court has said. So when, if, if and when we run out of money, you just have to, you just have to fleece the taxpayers. Well, and that's, uh, this is where I wish, uh, the Democrats would be honest and they would say, look, we've got this massive, it's actually $238 billion in cash payments that we owe over the next 30 years. Yeah. And they've, they've accounted for 200 of it. So we have, 238 billion of cash payments that we have to make over the next 30 years. And we haven't put enough money away. Mm -hmm. And it's really us. It's really Democrats. Well, I think it's fair to say that it's, would they have put aside 200 billion? So I haven't run million, that calculation. I don't billion? think it's actually even that much, but they've put aside some. Yeah. Right. 
We have. Well, so, I mean, I think that's where the actu- un- unfunded actual liability comes from is the difference between how much they've put aside and how right. much they have. So that according, like, with all of the payments made by public employees, the expected return on the stock market, all of the money that they expect to gain in the next however many years is $27 billion shy of the number of the amount of payments. We should have 27 billion more put away. Right. 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 And that would cover existing employees and existing retirees. I think future employees also. No. No? Not existing. A penny. Okay. And every year that you add new employees, it's about $3 billion more that you need to put away. And they haven't accounted for that. Right. But Democrats should say, look, we doinked up. Right? Mm-hmm. We have to put this money away now. We're going to have to raise taxes, fees, and fines dramatically billions of dollars a year to pay this liability. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to reduce the number of kids in a classroom. We're not going to be able to pave the roads. We're not going to be able to do all these other things. We'll do a basic minimum, but we've got to put this money away, right? Well, why would Please you? Please vote for me. Why would you do that if you're a Democrat? They won't. Because you, you can... You, you're bribing the people of Oregon with all these these services that you don't have to pay for because you're mortgaging 30 years down the line. And 30 years from now, when the bill comes due, we're going to be... We will they'll be, be dead. We'll, they'll be dead. <laughs> and we'll be... We, the state of Oregon, will be so accustomed to getting all these services that we're not going to be able to roll them back. That's exactly true. We'll come back, take a break. This is Ali and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero. Jim Pacero's on sabbatical. I'm here with her friend James Ball. We're talking about PERS, which I didn't actually think we'd talk about. I've got <laughs> two. Comes up a lot. If, if you want to know, <laughs> if you want to know more about this, uh, follow on Facebook next week. We'll be publishing, uh, the second article. The first article was on the liability, which is how much we owe. The second article is on the assets. It's on the 60 billion that we've set aside. And some of the, the things that they've done to leverage, borrow more to fill in the gap. And then the last segment, which I think will get published and then we should, maybe we could do almost an entire show on it is how do we solve it? Yeah. How do we get out of it? And I've got five or six things that, that I listed. Some of them are pretty out there. Um, but it's meant to encourage people to think more broadly ab- about the problem. So we were looping back to the, the money that's saved and why it's different than the federal government. You know, one of the things you, you really had to read closely and even read between the lines when they were talking about the, the next COVID, uh, mm-hmm. payment, bailout, whatever you want to call it. Nancy Pelosi was talking about protecting the retirement of public employees. Mm-hmm. There's about, trillion in unfunded liabilities in the United States. So if you take Oregon's 27 billion, California would be 10 times that. Go through the whole thing. It's about 1.5 trillion altogether. Yeah. The federal government could print the money to pay off the 1.5 trillion. Yep. Right. The, The problems that you run into are most of it, and there's not, I, I won't make sweeping generalizations. I'll try to focus on this. Most of the unfunded liabilities are in blue states. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going to disproportionately help out blue states if you print the money and send it out. Well, so I don't know that that's, I mean, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I don't know that that's a good argument against it because in typically red states get more federal money than blue states do just in okay. general. And in a normal fiscal year, you're getting taxes from the, like the, the blue states are the economic engines. They pay more taxes and those taxes are then redistributed to farm bills and whatnot in the Midwest. So I don't know that that's a good argument against it. I'm just saying politically, you're going to be writing the federal government's going to be writing multi-billion dollar checks to Oregon, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, those states. And politically, the optics of that are are tough because there are states like well, Texas. Not if you're a Democrat. No, not if you're a Democrat, <laughs> right? And the 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 COVID bailout is so big, they may be able to hide it. Mm-hmm. And 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 underneath everything that's going on, this is the big fight between uh, if the Senate falls. They will do this. Yeah. Right? Now, I don't know that it's such a horrible idea for the federal government to do this. Well, here's what I would do if I was Mitch McConnell, is you need to put one more statement in that. In order to receive this money, you have to fully fund the net present value of your of your liability, of your pension system going right. forward. Because like we talked about earlier, we have to pay this one way or the other. And the way I see it, it like... Because we owe so much and we haven't figured out how to collect that money, the, the really one of the only ways to do it is raise taxes, fines, and fees to pay for it, which means we, the people of Oregon, are going to have to pay a ton of money and not get any benefit for it. Right. Which, interestingly, is kind of what we're doing anyway, but we're just not funding. So, I, I would I would be fine... Not fine. I still don't like the idea of just getting a multi-billion dollar payout from the government because we mismanaged our pension system, but... We're kind of in this hole now. So if we're going to get the payment, the, I just don't want this to happen again. And I feel like right. if we get this giant payment where the, the, our state legislatures are going to be like, Oh, great. Now we can, we can crank up the money machine. And, you know, 40 years from now, when we've ruined the pension system again, we'll just get another bailout from the government. So the way to do it is to switch from a defined benefit plan where I make a promise to you about what I'm going to pay you 30 years in the future to a defined contribution plan, which is we put the contribution in today and that's it. And then it accrues and you get whatever comes out the other end. Well, that's so you're, like a 401k. You're right. But that's never going <laughs> to get past the unions or the Democrats or any state employees. <laughs> to your point from earlier, there are like 600,000 state employees in the state of Oregon. They are never going to vote for something like that. No, they because don't. Because like, to your point from earlier, like the pension is great. That Having to not think about, do I have enough money to retire is a wonderful benefit. And I... I Honestly, I would be fine with a pension system that is well-managed. My problem is the state of Oregon has already demonstrated that they are right. unable or unwilling to manage the pension system so, properly. So, And this was the conclusion I came to. We have 60 years now that proves they can't do it. Yes. They, they're, they're incapable of having nice things. So you, you, put, it into so, you put it into a statute <laughs> that they have to. They, that there's an actuary that goes in and says, you, you need to put this. It's in the statute now. Is it? And they're just not doing it? Right. Because they fudge 
they fudge the rules because you're always going to have fluctuations in years. You're going to, you're going to forecast that you need this much and oops, we needed this much. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be this and there's mechanisms in the system right now that require you to put away a certain amount of money and it goes through this calculation. It's just that they can't do it. They, they, they've demonstrated that they can't do it. So my thing is from a Mitch McConnell standpoint is, Fine. We'll bail you out. It is illegal for a state to have a pension plan that they, that isn't fully funded on the, on the day that the commitment is made. Now, hmm. yeah. and the only way to do that is a four is a defined contribution plan. Everybody else has done it. Federal government is defined contribution. Hmm. Basically, everybody in the private sector is defined contribution. The other thing is, is it does put us all in the same boat. <clears throat> mm-hmm. There isn't this divide between Democrats and Republicans, private sector and public se- uh, private sector and public sector. We're all concerned about saving for our, our future, and you can put a defined contribution plan in place that gives you the same kind of return mm-hmm. as a defined um as defined a defined benefit, benefit plan. Yeah. It's very lucrative. I mean it's like it's like a ten percent IRA with a ten percent <laughs> match. I yeah. mean it's really, really nice. And the other thing is is that it <laughs> You're going to find people in the private sector. Now you can do apples and apples comparison. Mm-hmm. And you say, wait a minute. You get, you put in 10% of your salary and you get a 10% match. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to, it's also going to force the private sector to be more serious about really lucrative pension plans for people, defined contribution plans. Because in the private sector, we had, Defined benefit plans, but the companies would go bankrupt. Yeah. General Motors went bankrupt, right? Yep. And all of a sudden those pensions are out the window. Are out the window. Yep. But a defined contribution. Yep. You put the money in. It's my money. You can go bankrupt. I've, I've got my money. Well, it's about risk. And this is something, a point I've made before. Like what you're doing with defined benefit is the, the risk of managing that money is on the institution. Whereas with defined contribution, the risk is on the individual. And with risk comes responsibility and also reward. But again, to my point from earlier, the state of Oregon has already demonstrated that they are incapable, unable or unwilling to manage that risk properly. Right. So what do we do? Do we put it into statute and like make them do it or do we shift that risk to the individual? I see I wouldn't shift it to the individual. I'd still leave the Oregon Investment Council in place. What you would do is what they've done with Oregon Saves where you'd take your money, put it in, they'd mm. match it with their money and they would continue to do that because they have access to investment vehicles that you will never have access to. Sure. Because yeah. they they make their allocations in in units of of quarter billion dollars yeah right um and that that could solve it this problem is solvable mhm but everybody in oregon needs to understand that we are going to underfund things that you would like to have right now 
because we've already made these promises to people that are going to happen 30 years in advance. We aren't going to have the roads that we want. We aren't going to have the schools that we want. We aren't going to have the class sizes that we want. We aren't going to have the parks. We're not going to have any of that stuff because we already spent it. But step one is admitting that there's a problem. And that's where the Democrats are failing. They can't. Because they they, will not admit that there's a problem. And hopefully through some of this, we're going to be able to highlight that, bring it to the forefront, make it a topic that we can talk about. That's all for this week. Thank you. I didn't anticipate that we'd end up <laughs> talking about PERS doing again. 30 minutes on PERS or whatever it was. Uh, we may have Jim back next week. I think so. He's back from sabbatical. Yeah. Okay. This is Allie and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Thanks for listening. This has been Allie and Pacero with your hosts, Alan Alley and Jim Pacero. The podcast is produced by James Ball. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to alan at alanalley.com.